0: Please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided, you can uh, find that uh, starting on page 181. This morning we're going to read all of Joshua 6 and the first verse of chapter 7, because it sets the stage for the next two chapters. And I want you to understand that this is all really one big thing that's happening in Joshua's 6 through 8. So let's read together Joshua chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward. March around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house, and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in, and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother, and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord, cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city, Jericho, At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay the the foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. This is God's word. One of the things you'll notice if you pay attention to both current events and even uh, 20th century history is that you often hear the word post attached to the front of words and ideas. So our own times, we think we live in now the the post-COVID world, right? And by that, we don't mean that COVID is necessarily over, but we do mean that we're never going to go back to a time when there wasn't COVID. And we live not only just in time after that, but we live in a time where hopefully we've learned the lessons of whatever COVID was supposed to teach us. We've, we've changed things about our our world. We live in this post-COVID world. So you hear people say we also live in a post-modern world, right? We've rejected Modernity, and we are now doing something different, although many say now that we're post-postmodern because we have rejected post-modernity. Some people say we live in a post-Christian world, that the, the reign of Christendom is over, and so it no longer has the same impact on our world. It means we, we live differently now. We can never go back to that Christian world of the maybe the medieval era. We're post-Christian. So post indicates not only just a a time afterward, but it indicates kind of a fundamental reorientation of our our approach to life because of this event that's happened. Perhaps nothing demonstrates this more than saying we lived in a a post-war world after World War II. American culture was fundamentally different than it was before the two world wars. I think as we come to this chapter six of Joshua, we should consider that perhaps we are supposed to live in a post-Jericho world. We're supposed to see what God did here at Jericho. And with the, the remnants of Jericho in ruins, remember God displayed his power. God's judgment fell and God's salvation was displayed. I think that one of the things Jericho chapter 6 calls us to is to live in light of that reality, to try to live in a post-Jericho world. As we look at this text this morning, I want us to see three things. First, that the Lord reveals his power. As Pastor Tim already helpfully explained, that's what's going on here. The Lord is doing something. The Lord reveals his power. Secondly, the Lord's people display the Lord's power. Through faithful obedience. The Lord's people display his power through faithful obedience. And then finally, your experience of the Lord's power depends on your relationship to him. Your experience of the Lord's power depends on your relationship to him. So let's first look at this first point. The Lord reveals his power. And by starting here, we're, we're doing again what Tim did and saying Joshua fought the battle of Jericho is a really misleading song title, right? If we look at what Joshua did here, there's really nothing about him fighting anything, right? We see Joshua speaking, Joshua commanding, Joshua rising early in the morning. The most intriguing thing that Joshua does here is it says Joshua saved alive Rahab, right? So Joshua doesn't fight in this chapter. What is happening? Well, I want you to see the key actor in this event at Jericho is the Lord himself. The fall of Jericho is an account of God's power on display, God's saving power and his judging power. We see this clearly early on when, the, when verse 2, uh, the Lord says to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. The Lord is giving Jericho to Joshua and his people. Joshua's going to repeat this in verse seventeen when he when he's giving these instructions to the people. On that seventh day, the Lord gave the city of Jericho. He, Joshua um, says, "See, I have given Jericho into your hand." I'm sorry. That's that's what the Lord says. The, Joshua says to the people, and <clears throat> I've lost it. I'm sorry. Well, you just trust me. It's there. But Joshua says to the people I, that the Lord has given Josh, given Jericho into their hand. That, that's the big headline here. The Lord is doing this. The Lord's power is on display. And I think this is, again, helping us make sense of these phenomenon we see, right? The people of Israel circle the city repeatedly. But I want you to notice that what's at the center of their circling is the ark, the ark of the Lord, right? It's repeatedly mentioned in this chapter, The Lord mentions it when he's talking to Joshua in verse 4. Joshua mentions it when he's giving instructions to the the priests and the people in verses 6 and 7. And then when the story is kind of narrated for us, the ark is central. It's mentioned five times in verses 8 through 14. I want you to look especially at verse 11, which is kind of the summary statement in the middle of recounting days 1 and days 2. It says, So he, I believe that's Joshua, caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. This whole point of the circling is for the, the ark to be caused to circle the city. When we looked at the the, the account of Israel crossing the, the Jordan River, we saw how the, the ark was this central symbol of the Lord's presence, the Lord's saving presence. And so as we think about Jericho and what's happening there, instead of thinking about the people marching, we should primarily think about the ark of the Lord marching. Or to think about the Lord himself marching. The Lord is encircling the city once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day. That's the big point here. The big action in Jericho is the Lord himself encircling the city of Jericho. So we kind of have a a perfect week of the Lord's encirclement of Jericho. The blasts of the trumpets are already also signs of the Lord's presence. And this is why we read Exodus chapter 19 as part of our service. It's interesting in Exodus 19, we don't have any instructions for anyone to blow a trumpet. We just hear trumpets again and again. Um, so we read as uh, in, in Exodus 19, 18 through 20. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord had descended on it in fire The smoke of it went up like the smoke of the kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The trumpets are almost presented as almost a natural phenomenon right along with the thunder and the earthquake. It's just something that's happening. The people hear trumpets. Here in Joshua 6, this same Lord has now descended not on Mount Sinai, but on Jericho, And he's accompanied by these same trumpet blasts. I wonder even if the point of the shout of the people is to mimic the sound of God's thundering from Mount Sinai. I can also imagine the people walking around the city created some cloud of dust. Maybe that's part of the imagery too. But what we see here is that God is here at Jericho. This gateway city to the the land of Canaan. The Lord has come. And it's the Lord who makes the city's walls fall down flat, right? The people of Israel never have any agency in that, right? It's just coincidental on those two, their shout. That's when he makes the walls down flat and he makes them such so that every man, I guess, surrounding the city can just go straight in, right? Can go straight towards the center point of that circle and they can carry out the Lord's will. We see at the very beginning of this chapter, Jericho is shut up tight. Nobody can come in, nobody can go out. But at the Lord's working, the walls fall down flat and his people enter. His people enter and they bring out Rahab and the precious metals of Jericho. This is all the Lord's doing. That's the headline over Joshua chapter 6. The Lord is at work. The Lord here reveals his power. The Lord reveals his power by giving the city to his people. It's important that we link those two statements. The Lord reveals his power and gives the city to his people. To say that the Lord reveals his power is not necessarily good news, right? There are lots of things that we experience as as powerful that are catastrophic. So a hurricane's really powerful, earthquakes are powerful, volcanoes are powerful. None of them do you really want to be around, right? At Sinai, we see the Lord revealed his power and the people were terrified. But here we see that as the Lord manifests his power, it's power that's manifested on behalf of his people. It's power that's meant to give the city to his people. It's power that works to save Rahab and her family. The Lord reveals his power in a way that works generosity and grace for his people. So for those who are redeemed by God, our hope is in our almighty God and him displaying his power. We don't trust in our own wisdom or ability. We're completely dependent on the Lord's power, just as Israel is dependent here at Jericho. And this is something that should be fundamental to our relationship with God. We should understand ourselves as those who who need God's power, who see God as the giver and see us, ourselves, we are recipients of God's gifts. He's the one who has authority over heaven and earth, over all things visible and invisible. He's the one who turns kings' hearts like rivers of water. He's the one who carves out the paths of rivers of water. The Lord makes city walls fall down. It's by this same power that sinners are saved, that Christians grow in godliness, that churches are sustained. To walk with the Lord is to depend on his power. It's to trust in his grace as he deploys his power, right? The Israelites couldn't tell God how to use his power. They weren't setting the agenda here. They didn't say, okay, now, now, Lord, now it's time to make the walls fall down. The whole thing was the Lord's plan. And so to walk with the Lord means you, you trust that the Lord is going to reveal his power at the right time for your life. We trust that as the Lord manifests his power in our lives, he will be gracious to us. So we don't live sort of in in terror before this powerful God. Because we have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ, we understand that God's power is working grace in our lives. We see the Lord's power most clearly on display for us in the cross which is the most strange display of power you can imagine, right? God demonstrates his power in coming to die for us. God demonstrated his power as Christ suffered at the hands of the powerful men of Israel and Rome. Christ became weak in order to save us. And then he demonstrated his power over death by rising from the dead. That is the power of God that saves we, we are dependent on this kind of power. We are nothing unless the Lord has saved us by his power. We are nothing unless the Lord has changed our hearts by his power. So we see here the Lord's ways are not our ways, right? The Lord directs his people to wait on his power, and they do. We have to sit and trust that the Lord will be gracious and generous to us. We can't work these things on our own. To live the Christian life is to stake our lives on the Lord who reveals his power. But there's a a difference here in Mount Sinai and Jericho that's helpful to see. The Lord displays his power in both places. But here at Jericho, the power is displayed in what we might call a, a mediated way. The Lord uses his people to display his power. And that's our second point. The Lord's people display his power through their faithful obedience. And here, in Joshua, here in Joshua chapter 6, the Lord uses Joshua to command the people. So he uses Joshua to display his authority of command and his word. He uses the priest to carry the ark of the covenant. And he uses the whole congregation to encircle the city day after day, or at least the men of war of the congregation to circle the city day after day and to shout at the appointed time. The Lord didn't have to do any of this, right? We know he could have just made the walls fall down. But the Lord is pleased to use his people to display his presence and his power at Jericho. We see here there is a unity between God and his people. The Lord acts through the people's actions as they obey him. And so here at Jericho, we can say two things at the same time. We can say that the Lord reveals his power at Jericho, and we can say that people display his power at Jericho. Both are, are right, legitimate things to say here. The way the people of Jericho know the Lord is at work is they see and hear the people encircling their city. They hear the, the sounds of the trumpets being blasted. They see the priests carrying the ark, Their experience, Jericho's experience of the Lord's power comes through the the people doing God's will. And they do God's will because they are faithfully obeying him. That's the complete picture. The Lord displays his power through the people as the people obey him. The Lord commands, the people obeys. Well, this obedience here is all the more noteworthy because of the strange things the Lord was asking them to do. The Lord doesn't give them a battle plan. There's no kind of strategy laid out here. As a matter of fact, what they did was probably pretty uh, strategically risky, right? To stretch out all your your troops, you know, in a thin line around the city. To do the same thing day after day for six days. So their obedience required them to, to trust the Lord. That this strange plan would result in their receiving this gift of the city. The Lord would protect them as they executed the plan and that at the end, the Lord would do what he said. The Lord would display his power in them. I think their faithful obedience is especially seen in the command of Joshua for the people to keep quiet. So verse 10, Joshua says, "'You shall not shout or make your voice heard, "'neither shall any word go out of your mouth "'until the day I tell you to shout. "'Then you shall shout.'" So as Israel walks around the city each day, they're not to walk jeering at the citizens of Jericho. They're not there to sing fight songs. They're not even to preach to the Jerichoites. The Israelites' job was to walk in silence, besides the people blowing the trumpets, to walk silently until the order was given to shout. You see here, their obedience was a A patient humble obedience we see this obedience is emphasized by the way that the account of the city's fall pauses on the seventh day right so right in the middle of of the narrative of them doing this circlement for the seventh time we have a break in the action and we see that joshua gives instructions to the people But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So again, Israel is given instructions for obedience right here as they're about to take the city. And these instructions show us that Israel's obedience is to reflect the Lord's own holiness, his judgment, and his salvation. We see the people of Jericho are judged with the edge of the sword. Rahab is saved. And these holy things are to be brought out of the city. The people are to take care that Rahab is saved and that they keep themselves from these devoted things. The Lord's character is on display as his people faithfully obey him. Now, this idea of things devoted to destruction is, is a curious idea, and it's one that scholars debate a lot about. It's difficult because we see uh, one, one evidence of this devoted to destruction is the slaughter of the people of Jericho. And so we wonder, some scholars wonder, well, is this kind of the Lord endorsing some kind of genocide? Well, that's not at all what's going on here. It helps to observe that we see two categories of, of things devoted to destruction. We see living beings and objects, right? And in the case of the living beings, their being devoted to destruction is really a synonym for saying they have to be destroyed. But with objects, these objects can be taken and put in the Lord's treasury. What what can't happen to them is they can't be taken as spoil for any individual person. Right? So these devoted things are sort of th- a lot of as consecrated, right? The Lord says they're to be taken, and then they become holy to the Lord. They're to be counted as holy to the Lord. So devoted thing doesn't mean like dirty thing or or dangerous thing. It means set apart for God in some way, set apart for, for God's dealing. And so in the case of these objects, they're, they're set apart to be holy to God. And that means for an Israelite to have taken one of these objects, precious metal objects, a gold maybe goblet from Jericho, is tantamount to that Israelite having broken into the tabernacle and stolen the golden lampstand, right? These things are, are holy to the Lord. They're not to be handled in a common or unclean way. There's probably an echo here of the Lord plundering the Egyptians as the people of Israel left Egypt. But Joshua warns them that if they t- take any of these devoted things the camp of Israel will become a devoted thing. Israel will become a thing devoted to destruction. And so Israel's obedience, even in war, is to take regard for the Lord's holiness. And Israel's, as as they are carrying out this war, they are in danger of themselves offending God and becoming objects of his wrath. And as we read in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, that's exactly what happens. One of the Israelites does take some devoted things. So even in the midst of this great, miraculous victory, we see Israel offending their God. The people's display of God's character here is not an accidental byproduct of the Jericho story. It's the point. As the Lord's people hear his word and obey him, they are a living testimony to the Lord's glory. They're a living testimony to the power of the Lord who delivered them from Egypt and dried up the Jordan so they could cross it. Their existence in Canaan and their conquest of it is to display the Lord's holy character. That's why they're here. And the function of the Lord's people has not changed from then until now. His power is still displayed through his people. If you want to think about where Christ where where God's power is most displayed in his people, we have to think of, of Jesus, the ultimate Israelite, right? He is the one who most clearly displays the power and character of the Lord. We, we normally sort of maybe brush this aside. We think, well, Jesus was God. Of course, he displays God's character. But it's helpful to consider Jesus according to his humanity. As a man, he did all that God commanded him to do and say. At key moments, Jesus was careful as a man not to speak, right? To remain silent and wait for God's timing. We see that the Lord's instruction to Jesus required Jesus to fit to trust in the Lord, to believe that God's plan was good for him, even as that plan meant his crucifixion. The Lord's journey exposed him to the attack of the Lord's enemies. And didn't just expose him, he did experience the attack of the Lord's enemies. He wasn't spared like Israel was spared at Jericho. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, he displays the Lord's salvation and judgment. He takes upon himself the judgment that that man deserves. He absorbs that in his own body. And he was raised from the dead victorious over sin and death because he had no sin of his own. The Lord Jesus demonstrates the Lord's hatred for sin, but also the Lord's mercy for those who believe. So the man, Christ Jesus, displays the Lord's power. He perfectly reflects God's character in the way that he lives. As God's people today, we also are to display the Lord's power as we follow Christ. And our following Christ doesn't begin with being obedient to Christ, but in being recipients of Christ's saving work. To display the Lord's saving power means that first and foremost, we have to be saved by him. That's Israel's own story, right? Even as we look at them kind of maybe as uh, we assume that kind of they're in the right, we, we just talked about how they had to be circumcised right after crossing the Jordan. They were delivered from, from judgment of God, right? They, they are a story of God's mercy and salvation, Rahab also is a story of God's mercy and salvation. She started to reflect the Lord's glory because the Lord saved her. And the same is true for us. We display the Lord's glory as those who have been saved by, the, by Christ's death and resurrection. Now besides understanding that principle, it may not be evident to you how do you display the Lord's saving work. Right, The people of Jericho, they could see this, this people here at their city gates and know the miracles that had got them there, right? They had heard of the, the tale of the Red Sea and now the tale of the Jordan Crossing. So Israel's, Israel's showing up at their gates was kind of a miracle in itself. I wonder if one reason we find it so hard to show the Lord's glory and the Lord's power is because we're trying to do it alone. But really, we need the church for this. It's as we are united together as Christians in Christ's church that we most powerfully display the Lord's power. So in our relationships in the church, we have the opportunity to to testify to God's grace to each other. Even as we recited that confession of faith about regeneration and the grace of God, we're testifying. This has happened to me. I was born again. The Lord has shown his grace to me. In our relationships to the church, we have the opportunity to love others and submit to others, not because we just happen to like them, but because we share Christ in common. The church is the stage for enacting supernaturally empowered love. The church is the display of God's glory. The church should be a place where it's clear, a miracle has happened here. These people are here because Christ has saved them. So we display the Lord's power and glory as a church to the extent that we listen to his word and obey his word. Consider what that means for you. How are you listening to God's word? When the gospel is preached, whether it's here in the pulpit or listening to R.C. Sproul, how are you responding? You respond to the gospel and repentance and faith. Does the gospel bring you joy? Or does it seem kind of old news and boring? When you read the Word of God on your own, does it convict and encourage you? Or is reading the Word just kind of another thing on your list of things to do that day? A thing that you do so that you can feel good about yourself? How are you listening to the Word? And are you listening to the word with others? What I mean is, are you, are you sharing in the word that, that's preached to you with others? Are you talking about it when you get together with your brothers and sisters here at church? Is it common for you to have conversations about scripture? Or when you call each other throughout the week or have coffee, is the word of God central to your conversations? How are you listening to God's word together with your brothers and sisters? Is that something that's happening in your life? And are you obeying God's word? Are you seeking to live out the one another's of the New Testament in your relationships? Are you laying down your life for the good of your brothers and sisters here in the church? Or for the good of your family members? Are you pursuing righteousness and fleeing sin? Are you encouraging anyone else to pursue righteousness and flee sin? Are you enlisting others to help you Pursue righteousness and flee sin. These are all ways, as we do these things together, that we display the power and glory of the Lord. We display God's glory as the church. It's worth remembering that Israel displayed God's power and glory through patient and humble obedience here. Obedience that must have looked bizarre to the people of Jericho. Don't our Lord's ways look strange to our world? Didn't Jesus' way of, of reigning through death look strange? We have to confess that often the Lord will, will lead us in ways that we don't fully understand. Ways that may put us out of joint with the world. But we walk faithfully, trusting in his ways. Confessing our sin. Confessing our faith in Christ's work. Seeking daily to die to ourselves and to live to Christ. And doing that arm in arm with our brothers and sisters in the church. That's how we display the Lord's power. We display the Lord's power through our faithful obedience. In this account of Jericho, we find the the first step of Israel's conquest of Canaan. And it's tempting to read Joshua as a story of good guys and bad guys, right? That's the way we like to read stories, That's how most of our stories work. But we have to see that model does not apply to Joshua. Remember how we noted that Israel was warned in verse 18 not to take the devoted things? And we read in chapter 7, verse 1, that they took the devoted things, right? Achan takes the devoted things. And so it seems like in just a flash, everything's great, Joshua's founding favor in the eyes of everybody. And now Israel are the subjects of God's wrath. The next two chapters are going to be all about the Lord dealing with the repercussions of Israel's sin. So Israel made themselves devoted to destruction in a way by taking the devoted things. But we also see that Rahab, who should have been devoted to destruction, is plucked out of Jericho. She and her family should have died. You know, her, her things should have... Her family should have been burned up with the rest of the city, but they are saved alive because of her faith, because she hid the spies. So instead of being devoted to destruction, she lives out the rest of her life among God's people. She essentially becomes an Israelite, becomes one of the people of God because of her faith. So the conquest of Canaan does not show us that Israel is good and Canaan is bad. It shows us that all people, Israelite and Canaanite alike, stand before God as their judge. That all people, Israelite and Canaanite alike, need God as their savior. And this is our last point. Your experience of the Lord's power depends on your relationship to him. That's what makes the difference here. So that's why it's wrong to think of the conquest of Canaan in terms of genocide or even holy war, right? This was not Israel trying to eliminate every other ethnicity. Or Why would Rahab have been saved if that was the case? It's true that we, what we see is the Lord working through this people Israel, a sinful people, and we see that, that there is judgment coming. And it, perhaps that, that's what disturbs us. It, it looks kind of alike what we see in Examples of history where nations attempt to kill other nations based on ethnicity or religion or the color of skin or or something else. But these Israelites here are not simply any nation. They are the Lord's people created by God himself. And the main actor here in the book of Joshua is not Israel. It's the Lord. The Lord is at work. The Lord is giving Jericho into their hand. He's bringing salvation for those who belong to the Lord and judgment against those who persist in rebellion against him. That's the crucial message here. If we're disturbed by the account of Joshua, we need to remember the Christian confession. Just think of this confession that we recite pretty regularly in the Apostles' Creed. It starts off by saying, we believe in God the Father Almighty. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And after we confess our faith in Christ, we have this series of things about Jesus that we confess. And the conclusion of that series of things we confess about Jesus is that He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, He shall come to judge the living and the dead. The same Lord who judged Jericho is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead, the young and the old, men and women, rich and poor, Israelites and Canaanites, Jews and Gentiles. He's coming to judge all of us. I want you to make sure to see that this is a work of our Lord Jesus, right? I don't want you to be tempted to believe that what we're reading about in Joshua is that old, mean, angry Old Testament God, but we just need to turn over with the New Testament to find the, the gentle, merciful God. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. These are, are woes, Jesus pronounces, on some cities of, of Galilee as his disciples have returned from a mission work where they were proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in his name. So this is Luke chapter 10, verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, my disciples, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects, him, rejects me rejects him who sent me. Listen to how Jesus clarifies things for us here. Those who reject Jesus, and even those Jesus sends, his disciples, are rejecting God himself. And it will be better for the pagan cities than it will be for those who, who claim to know God, but whose hearts are far from him. You notice how it it all hinges on listening to the word of Christ and obeying it. So, the destruction of the people and the animals of Jericho does not present us with a picture of a cruel God. We must remember that Jericho also presents us with a picture of God's mercy and grace as he saves Rahab. We must remember that Israel itself is a testimony of God's mercy and grace. And we must remember that the rest of the citizens of Jericho had opportunity to repent and believe, right? They had the spies among them. Rahab did it, right? They had heard the stories of God's saving work. They didn't have to shut up the city. They could have opened up the city. They could have said, you are the God, the maker of heaven and earth. We bow down to you. So the question of Jericho is not, does the God of the Bible condone genocide? Clearly, the Lord does not, or he wouldn't have saved Rahab. The question Jericho raises, how will you dis- to respond when the Lord displays his power? The Lord has displayed his power in Christ. And he shows how those who are trapped in the prison of sin and death can be delivered. They can escape. Jesus, by his powerful pa- faith, obeyed all the Lord's commands to the point of death And because of his righteous life, he overcame death and rose again from the dead. So you don't have to remain in your rebellion. You can trust in the work of Jesus, the perfect man and the perfect son of God. And you can be saved. You can repent and believe. Not only do you have the testimony of Jesus in the scriptures, but you're sitting in a room with people who confess we have been saved by Jesus. We're here to testify to you just as Rahab testified to the citizens of Jericho. And just as the Israelites testified to the whole land of Canaan, the Lord saves. He delivers people from sin and death. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He delivered them through the the floodwaters of the Red Sea and the Jordan River. The Lord brings forgiveness and life to those who trust in him. And so when Jesus returns, will he find that you've heard his word and repented and believed? Or will he find you like the citizens of Jericho, shut up in a fortress of sin, assuming they're safe from trouble? Calvin says something like, how, how foolish were they to think that the God who had just dried up the Jordan can't overcome their measly city gates? And yet here they are all huddled in. You see how foolish it is to resist the Lord's power at the end of the passage we read Joshua stipulated a curse on anyone who would try to rebuild the city it doesn't really say who this curse is directed at it seems like it's probably directed at uh, Rahab and her family but maybe it's at everybody but we are told here that this place is to remain uninhabited now, Jericho itself is still a place name even in the book of Joshua, but it seems that this specific site was left untouched for a long, long time. But it wasn't one of Rahab's descendants. It was this man, Hiel, H-I-E-L. We, we find his story in First 1 Kings 16.34. In the days of Hiel of Bethel, in, uh, the, in his days, that's the days of King Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Ibarim, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of the youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. God's own people, one of God's own people thought, oh, I can can overcome this curse of the Lord. I'll rebuild. We should think of ourselves as living in a post-Jericho world. The Lord has clearly shown us how futile it is to live in rebellion against him. There's no city walls, no amount of money or popularity or power or technology that can protect us from the judgment and wrath of God. The ruins of Jericho should kind of stand out as a a testimony forever. Are we really going to try to rebuild it? Are we going to try to rebuild our our walls of self-sufficiency and sin are we going to trust in those things to save us the word of joshua 6 is don't double down on your rebellion against god the power of the lord is the grace of the lord to those who trust in christ so turn from your sin and trust in jesus but if you persist in rebellion Your experience of the Lord's power will be the experience of those in Jericho who were destroyed. So repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we are a people who are allergic to power. Not when we get to use the power, but when other people exercise it, we are afraid of it. We're afraid of being controlled or manipulated or made to do something we don't want to do. Father, we need your help to understand that that your power, manifested in Christ Jesus, is for our good. Help us to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Submit to Jesus as Lord. Help us to do that together as a church. Father, it's our desire that your glory be on display in our lives. We pray for you to to remove and prune away anything dead or selfish or self aggrandizing that would distract from who you are and what you're doing in the world. Help us to be a bright light showing forth the goodness of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.